in the moment, the tearing through your email box, though, it feels so good. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm knocking them out. I'm knocking them out. I'm going down. You see that number dropping. And then all of a sudden, your coworkers are like, hey, we're leaving for lunch. I'm like, lunch? Where did, where, where did my morning go? The views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Seat 41A. Uh, we want to welcome you guys back and any new listeners that are with us today. So if you haven't joined with us before, we have three MSCs, including myself here, that usually talk about a leadership style book that is appropriate for our field, where we are in our career. And uh, we discuss it, discuss the topics of the book, discuss the author and things that we have used from the book that we've seen in our actually everyday life, either personal or professional. My co-hosts with me today are... Hey, I'm Greg Taylor out of South Carolina. And I'm Christopher Foote, currently in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I'm Manoj Rima, currently in Altus, Oklahoma, where it's 105 degrees, but it's fine. Anyway, so today's book is It Worked for Me, In Life and Leadership by Colin Powell. I chose this book, actually, because if anyone didn't know, me, Chris, and Greg were all stationed at REF Lagan Heat together. So we all met and uh, had this bond and had this friendship begin. And we all had one squadron commander, Colonel Mackey. And when I pinned on Captain, she actually gave me this book as a gift. Uh, she thought it'd be a really good book for me to read it while I grew myself as a officer and a leader. It was a nice note on the very first page of the book. Uh, one of the middle parts she wrote was, you know, Colin Powell has some truly great leadership steps that any leader can benefit from. Hope you enjoy this book as much as I have. So I thought this was a perfect time to actually read the book together and discuss it. And so... I think we all know who Colin Powell is. I don't have to do a big introduction on him, but the book really went into a lot of rules and steps that he lived by and uh, worked by to get through his career. You know, starting as a janitor, you know, early on in his career became national security advisor. I mean, what a span this man had. And uh, in the book, he has a lot of military stories and modern military examples, which are very be beneficial. But the 13 rules were, it ain't as bad as you think. It'll look better in the morning. Two, get mad, then get over it. Three, avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it. Four, it can be done. Five, be careful what you choose. You may get it. Six, don't let adverse facts stand in the way of a good decision. Seven, you can't make someone else's choices. You shouldn't let someone else make yours. Eight, check small things. Nine, share credit. 10, remain calm and be kind. 11, have a vision, be demanding. 12, don't take counsel of your fears or naysayers. And lastly, 13, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. So I was going to talk about two of the rules that he had that really I saw a lot of familiarity with. So one of them was remain calm and be kind. And I definitely use this one a lot in my day-to-day -day job. There's a lot of instances with our jobs as MSCs, hot taskers, big projects, big important projects that affect the MTF as whole. And it, you're just you're just going crazy. And some people might have all that and then two other jobs on top of their plate to deal with all the drama and the day-to-day -day workload that goes with it. And every time I just have to close my door, 
take a breather and just remain calm. And I try really hard to not have my frustration come out at coworkers or my people because that can spread really quickly. So I, I, I really connected with that one a lot. So I definitely have those moments where I think my my flight chief and my team know if I close my door, I, I need a moment. And I tell my people that we all need a moment. And if it's not just a moment and you need half a day, you know, take it. We, we all need our mental health to get through the day. So all my people know, just try to remain calm and try to be kind as much as you can, because showing kindness can really make someone else's day. And if, if my day can't be made better, hopefully I can make someone else's day better. And then the other thing I thought was really cool, and it's not really one of the rules, but he had an example of hot dog diplomacy. And I thought that was a really fun phrase. And I kind of, I took it as you can kind of talk to someone and learn something about someone or a job or a situation or a problem and try to come up with a solution just over a hot dog, or in some cases over a beer after work or something. Because I don't know... You can come together in meetings all day long and try to work out solutions. And you have so many minds at the table and everyone's throwing out frustration and you probably can't get to the solution. But if you just go outside, talk to one-on-one, have a beer, have a hot dog with someone, I think you can learn a lot from that person's perspective, their issue, and come together to find an actual solution. So I really like those two examples from the book. All right. Well, before we break down our lessons learned from the book, I do want to interrupt the podcast briefly to introduce our very first special guest to the podcast and someone that Manoj Rima just talked about. Kathleen Mackey herself is here joining us on the podcast. Welcome, Colonel Mackey. Good evening. Thank you for having me. It's great to see everybody again. This is Lake and Heath reunion. This is awesome. For sure. Hey, for everyone in the audience, there may be some folks out there that aren't familiar with you, haven't met with you before. Can you just give everyone a quick intro on who you are, where you work, and a little bit about yourself? Yep. I work at a tier one facility in the States. I'm actually an SGA at that facility. I've been in about 28 years. I didn't start as a, in the medical career field. I actually was in personnel. And before that, before I even came in the Air Force, I was actually a a associate producer for a TV station. So I've kind of transitioned to get to where I am through several different jobs, but I've worked in very small facilities starting out. I was flight commanders for readiness and logistics and RMO and even had a little stint in systems, but uh, that was just covering for a little while. And then I've had a very big generalist career field as working as a deputy commander for a COCOM and working as an inspection agency in the uh, Air Force for health services, doing guard and reserve, and then doing data analysts for the inspection agency. So I've had a really good diverse background that is definitely generalist. So I know a little bit about everything, just enough to be dangerous, <laughs> but I'm not really a specialist in one field. Now we're moving into the DHA. So I'm getting to be a liaison for the market and learning lots of how we're going to maneuver in the next generation, which you guys will take us to not really mine as of 28 years, I'm getting close to retirement. So that's kind of my background. Yeah, you've uh, you've definitely seen some things and done some stuff. So great history. And just thanks again uh, for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. We really appreciate you being here. And we'll just start off with the first question talking about it worked for me. So Manoj mentioned that you gave this book to him at the point where he had just pinned on Captain. So if you could just share with us what inspired you to give him that book at that point. I think this book is perfect for even lieutenants, CGOs, 
just working into that responsibility of once you, you know, you're a lieutenant that you have that ability where people overlook some mistakes and everything. Once you hit captain, it's kind of similar going from tech sergeant to master. They kind of assume now you're an expert. You've been around for a while. So these rules can help anybody. And it, it doesn't mean just the healthcare, but uh, Powell's rules are just, I mean, not only in your career, but I think in your lifestyle, it will help you because it covers everything from, you know, how to treat people, how you need to kind of lead in different situations, not, not only military, but, you know, he, he talks about being in government in different areas, working with presidents, his career is very unique. And I think it gives a perspective from not only you as working in the government as a, you know, he talks about his career in the military is young, but he goes all the way through there to his secretary of state and working with presidents. You get that perspective from both views. So I, I think it's a good thing for an officer to hear, hey, this is what's going on at the White House. This is what, you know, the State Department's working with. This is what other countries and dealing with them. It's so easy to sit, look on the CNN and say, oh, why didn't they do it like this? You know, there's a lot more to it in politics and everything that we can all say. But as a leader, as you go up in your career, you're going to deal with a bigger span of people and harder to disseminate and work out these agreements. So I think this is a great tool for people starting out to understand there's more to it than just leadership at a small MTF. There's more, you know, people you need to deal with more dynamics as you get up the hierarchies. And this kind of helps you work through those before you get to that situation. That's great insight. I understand and it really resonated with me as well that there are lessons and there are stories in there from Colin Powell's whole life that from low scope or small scope of responsibility, really junior entry level type position all the way up to, you know, the top echelons of our Department of Defense. And there are takeaways for everybody at every level. And so it's a very applicable book. Hey, Chris, what were your key takeaways from the book? Yeah, thanks for asking. And Colonel Mackey, thanks for for those insights and that feedback. That's awesome stuff to hear. And, and I agree, certainly resonates with me as well. So like what Manoj was saying earlier about frustrations, that, that was one of the big areas. And Manoj, you were finally able to steal my thunder. I think I had done that to you two or three times in the previous episodes. So well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's payback. Yeah. I had a contingency though. So I had a backup plan. But I think in along those same lines, it's not as bad as you think. It'll look better in the morning. That one is really, for me, like things that I think are maybe urgent and important, like in that moment and right there, I try to have to remember this and, and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I can and should just give this a little extra time, come back to this in the morning, let it kind of simmer and stew for a little bit and then come back to it. Uh, so I, I really like that particular rule. If, if I may, I'd like to ask Colonel Mackey a question. Is there a specific time in your career that you remember where you maybe had to apply one or more of these rules to a specific situation or, or an instance? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, in part two, it says know yourself and be yourself. There were times where I was the lowest ringing person in the room and I had to remember that, hey, I still, I got here on my merits of what I've done and I needed to be able to articulate that in a way 
that sometimes they would not take me that in consideration that yes, I may be a, a rank younger, but I'm still here because I had the criteria to be there and I had proven my leadership style that I could be there in that type of situation. And there were a couple situations where you do your best, somebody's always watching. That's another great idea of, you know, there are younger people watching me dealing with somebody that maybe wasn't as kind or as, you know, as respectful as they should have been to my position as, you know, you know, I'm representing the medical field, but my rank maybe wasn't as high as some of the other people in the room. I had to know myself and not get too upset about that and be able to articulate hey, I'm here for a reason. This is my take on it. And, you know, not get too angry at the point of maybe they were being sarcastic. Maybe they had an attitude, but I know myself and I'm not going to let them spark that anger in me. And he talks about that very well. A lot of our things that we deal with is personality based. And sometimes you get against those people, but you've got to use those skills that you have to not get brought into that. And you have to know yourself and to say, hey, I'm not going to take this personally every time there's one person that, you know, baits you or knows that they can be cruel. You just can't fall for that. And so you've got to know yourself. And he talks about that in another point where he says, you know, hey, he had it in a lower report. He had, hey, you got a temper. And they actually wrote that in in his report. Well, he now knows that. So the same thing, you're going to have to use those in different situations where if you know you've got something like a temper or, you know, I'm I, I'm a kind person, I believe that I'm not going to leave that even if people take advantage of it. Um, and there are times where people did take advantage and I knew they were taking advantage of it, but I kept to my principles and knowing myself and that's how I'm going to lead. So that's one of the main things that I, I liked about his book. He talks about it in a couple different areas of knowing yourself and how it applies to yourself. So that's one of the big takeaways. That's great. Great advice, I think, for MSCs across the world, because oftentimes with our core, right? We're the ones, we're the junior one at the table, at the flight command level, at the squadron command level, where we're put into leadership positions almost from day one, depending on where your first assignment is. And we can find ourselves being that junior ranking person and knowing yourself and being confident in what got you there, I think is big in remembering that you do have a seat at the table, you've earned it. So that's really good takeaway. I was going to ask, so, you know, I brought it up with one of the rules that I felt closely with, but the other one, I think it kind of goes along with what we were talking about, you know, get mad and then get over it. So I've taken advice from my uncle who had this little rule that he said, you know, you can't bottle up anger. It's, It's just not healthy. It's not healthy physically. It's not healthy mentally. So everyone gets mad. It's part of nature. It's part of our human life. That's fine. But his rule is you have two minutes, you get, you can be mad for two minutes, then it's over it. Cause it doesn't do anyone any good after that. It doesn't do yourself good. doesn't do the people uh, around you any good. So get two minutes. I, I don't do two minutes. I might do 20. I might need that much. I might need that more time, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to know what are y'all's ways of getting over it? Is it inappropriate to mention drinking booze at work? <laughs> work? Yes. <laughs> um, probably. To answer your question, though, for me anyway, the way I get over it, I like to do the draft an email and then don't send it. Honestly, most of the times, the things that aggravate me are things that come over via email. 
when we're talking in person or we can, or I can at least relate more to the person as a person, you know, we're people, not just positions, right? Or we argue positions. We don't argue against the person. And that's a little getting to yes anecdote for, for those longtime listeners. So in email, you know, don't fill out anything in the two block, right? So that you don't inadvertently send to anyone, but then just type in there, you know, and another thing, tick, 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 you know, that's usually very, very cathartic to me. And I type that email and then I delete it, or maybe I just save it in my drafts. And then an hour later I go back and then I delete it or whatever the case may be. And no offense to Chris. I don't think with our systems, the email probably wouldn't send anyway. Oh, wow. not, not this week. That's a, a burn. Not this week. Sorry. And look, I get, look, I, I love it. Okay. That's great. I had nothing to do with this. Okay. So I knew it was going to come up though, but that's okay. I didn't cause it and I can't fix it. <laughs> it's been an argument since I came in. So, <laughs> so Greg, I, I really love your email method. I've, I've heard that before. Not necessarily in this context, but I think it was more, you know, if you're dealing with like sort of a heated subject, you type the email, walk away from it, come back and look at it, and then decide, you know, if that's really the message that you want to send. Me personally, I've tried that and it just makes things worse for me. It's like throwing gas on the fire. So for me, it's more about, I think, time and distance. I try to just give myself time to just maybe push the item away from me for a little bit. If I'm able to, sometimes we're not able to, sometimes these issues come up and they're just, they're hot and we have to kind of face those. But in the immediate sense, while I'm at work, I try to give myself time and distance, but from an overall perspective, I know like for my own sanity, having like a regular workout routine that I try to be pretty rigid to, it helps with my overall stress management. All right. So uh, I have another I have a couple of comments that I had written down. A couple of things I liked from the book. First was the chapters are broken up by stories. You know, each one's a different story, but the chapters don't closely follow. You know, here's a, one of General Powell's rules, and then here's a story to illustrate the rule. Next chapter, rule number two, story number two. Uh, you know, that was the way that the hero code was written. And as someone who really enjoys the anecdotes, the stories from life, I appreciated the style that this book was written in more so than the hero code. I was able to connect on a deeper level with that one, uh, but I think they were both trying to say different things. This is definitely written more of a reflections on life from someone nearing the end of their professional life. So I did like that. And then one of the things that I didn't particularly like, or not that I didn't like it, but uh, I thought it was kind of interesting was, again, contrasting with Admiral McRaven and his story, the military stories within the hero code felt like he was talking about today's military. And the military stories that General Powell talked about in his felt like a military that doesn't exist anymore. I noticed that too. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a great point. It felt more nostalgic. And maybe that was just the position that he was taking as he was writing it. Because like you said, with the hero code, there was the story with the general, right? And it it felt like we were reading a CBT more than it did a story that was trying to convey this, you know, message of leadership or a lesson in in some way. Right. And, And I mean, there's a little bit about technology. And then I think one complaint that gets tossed around quite a bit is how 
today's military doesn't have the same level of discipline, customs and courtesies, a lot of those kind of small things that people who grew up in the military feel is, you know, a significant loss, right? But brand new people in the military are like, whatever, dude, get over it, boomer. Can we get beards? Is that a, can we bring that conversation back? Sorry. <laughs> so, so the, you know, the anecdotes in the book, you know, some of those just kind of speak to that same kind of tone that you hear from folks who've been around for a long time about how just today's military just is missing some of those elements that were a foundational part of their upbringing and their their maturity within the military. And I think speaking for the old person in the room, um, I think some of the traditions we've lost because of, you know, downsizing and all the normal things um, that you guys are getting asked to do. I, I think he doesn't really talk to that, but a lot of those things that we talk about, those customer currencies, there's traditions that have been lost. And I, I think that's where a lot of the complaints of today's older generation is we've lost the traditions of, you know, and that good discipline is part of that tradition. It's like the COVID, you know, half the COVID people, you know, right now, generation coming in, have never seen a real promotion ceremony or a real retirement ceremony. So they're just getting to see that stuff right now. And I think in here, he really doesn't go into that traditions and why those are important in the leadership round too. Well, it's also, I think it's also like a sense of belonging. I think when we could get behind one tradition, one history, you know, that kind of thing. I think we all feel like one team then and you feel like one team. I think the teamwork gets better. I feel like I do want to throw out though, that there are definitely some traditions that needed to go like the, the drinking at work and, and things like that, you know, but we need to find different and better ways to build camaraderie than, you know, getting sloshed in the office and then driving home, you know, Maybe in some ways in our effort as an organization to curb some of those negative things that definitely did need to go, we we cut too deep or we, we swung the pendulum too far in one direction where the uniqueness and the connectedness of the military is lost and it's more business-like. This is just the thing that I do from 7.30 to 4.30 each day. That part is happening, especially when we trans transition to DHA. <laughs> I'm feeling less and less military as I transition. Really? Okay. I mean, they. I, I keep hearing the saying that we want to become like civilian hospitals, civilian organizations. We're just not, and we can't operate that way. We we have a readiness and military mission that we have to do on the base that we serve, especially when we deploy. So it's really hard because the civilian organizations don't have readiness metrics that they have to meet and trainings they have to do. And then deploy, where then you're leaving 40, 50 people outside of an MTF now, you still have to get the job done. Like that doesn't happen at civilian organizations. So I don't know how it's like comparing apples to TVs. Like it's just, it's just different. I mean, there's some good things about DHA. I think the fact that we won't need three systems for immunizations, who needs that? <laughs> I mean, if you've been to a joint base, it's, it's terrible. They You walk into our process and they, they're like, oh, okay, what service are you? Okay, I've got a different checklist for that service. That's a waste of our manpower's time. Agreed. Yes, ma'am. Agreed. But you're right. There are some things we got to be very careful about not to lose some of those military traditions too, just from service to service. Our base, we have three different services. So we have 
plenty of other service members coming to the Air Force and, and vice versa. A lot of our specialties going over to the Navy side because that's who has the larger amount of specialty services So and inpatients. So you're right. We can absolutely lose some of that service-related traditions. Chris, did you have any other takeaways that came from the book? The other rule that I really liked was the have a vision and be demanding. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it was something to the effect that leaders have to embed uh, a sense of purpose into their followers. That really resonated with me because it's really, it can be really challenging sometimes to have that vision and be demanding, right? When we're trying to provide a sense of purpose or at least connect what we do, especially in the service squadrons, right? Because we don't, we have indirect patient contact. We don't have direct patient contact. So sometimes it can feel like what we're doing can get lost, right? We're not out there, you know, flying the planes. We're not turning the wrenches for the planes. So we have to take several steps to connect what we're doing to the mission. And so for me, I've always tried to have that vision. And especially from a systems perspective, it's really challenging sometimes to translate like what we do from a technical perspective into words and phrases that leadership or other personnel like across the the group will understand in a way that connects it to what their priorities and their visions are and then connecting that to the wing or the mission as a whole so you have to like i have to kind of make sure that i'm translating what i'm doing while communicating what the what is in the mind of our leadership to our people to help them understand what their purpose is so I, I really enjoyed that part of the of the book to have that vision, but then also to be demanding. So now that I have this vision and this idea, well, now I have to hold my folks accountable to a high level of standard that I know that they're capable of. And sometimes I just know from me personally, sometimes I might put my foot on the accelerator a little too much. And so you kind of try to balance to figure out where is that ceiling without being too harsh, but also not too gentle. Having though that strong vision, I think it's powerful because it helps you to know where to strategically say no. You know, hey, you know, that's a great idea, but we're moving in this direction. And I really need you to focus your effort in that direction. And that's maybe something that we can circle back to at a later date. Otherwise, we can get so distracted by the noise out there and just, you know, the, the hottest and latest thing that's going on, you know, the top email on the email box and let that derail your day where with a strong vision and reinforcing and reaffirming that consistently is like, okay, well, I can better articulate, hey, you know, we're doing what the command is and our organization is asking us to do right now. Or, so that's just not within our bandwidth at the moment. And with all the electronic stuff, you can get overwhelmed with just trying to answer your email, but did you really accomplish what the mission was? So that's can be a distractor also, I think. I'm so glad that you bring up that point that we can get distracted by email because we just saw a, you know, what a one or two week long email outage. And from my perspective, I don't feel like the organization came to a screeching halt. Like we were still able to conduct a mission to see patients. You know, it just meant that, okay, maybe we have to just get out of our offices and go see somebody or pick up the phone and, and call somebody as opposed to getting the 50 to 70 emails a day that you get that you're not reading them. I'm not reading these every day. Like I'm skimming them at best. So yeah, that's an excellent point that technology, what we think becomes this enabler really doesn't. It just becomes a distraction and a burden. In the moment, the tearing through your email box, though, it feels so good. 
Like, <laughs> oh, I'm knocking them out. I'm knocking them out. I'm going down. You see that number dropping. And then all of a sudden your coworkers is like, hey, we're leaving for lunch. Like lunch? Where did, where, where did my morning go? Yeah, I will say, I think I, I accomplished more than I thought I would in that little week that we didn't get email. Like, like you said, Chris, everything still got done. We still communicated with people we needed to communicate with. But you're right. Even our commander was like, this is a chance to get up and talk to people face to face. He loves face to face communication. You get so much more done. You get to be like, oh, you're the person I've been emailing this whole time about this issue. I, I didn't realize you work here in this office back here. And you might understand their situation a little bit more, understand what they go through and that their issues. So I'm definitely a walker. I have to get out from behind my desk and go see people because I'm, I'm definitely more of a face-to-face conversation guy. So I enjoy the email outage. Are you an 06 that just scared the heck out of all these airmen as you walk through the office and they're going, what? <laughs> What's going on? I think he mentions that in the book too about... <laughs> going out to the front line and talking with people. Uh, and he really enjoyed doing that and really learned a lot from getting out from behind his desk and talking to people, for lack of a better phrase, well beneath him, you know, like not his executive staff or his assistant. He went out and talked to like, you know, the janitors, uh, the the food workers. I love the story where he was, you know, Secretary of State. And I guess the parking garage was a huge problem. They packed him in there and he walked down there and, and, you know, they were like, what are you doing? Are you lost? Do we need to help you? And he just started asking him, Hey, how do you do this? And, you know, and it, it, the staff said, it, he asked, Hey, how do you decide who gets out first? And, you know, in the parking lot and he promised, so they told him, he said, well, sir, it's the person who rolls down the window, says hello, and actually gives you eye contact. You're first to get out the door. <laughs> so he learned something about how they, they, you know, that kindness. And that, that's what I like about this book is he'll put two lessons into one chapter. You know, one is getting out and asking the questions and they'll tell you if you, you, you know, you're honest about it. But then he finds out, Hey, they crave that there's a whole lot of people out here that don't treat us well in the parking garage. These are important people that get people out and in in a timely manner in a very chaotic situation in the parking garage. And these are high level people, you know, that they have to make sure are in and out and need to be where they need to be. So he used a couple examples like that of kindness that, you know, you have to show people and it doesn't matter who you are. So in closing, ma'am, uh, we wanted to ask if you had any final words of wisdom or any advice for those MSC officers out there that are listening. Yeah, I think the first thing is stay true to yourself because as you have more people and it can be sometimes like clicks, you have to, but you have to stay true. That's what got you to your leadership position. Don't turn away from that. Get back to your boss, especially with all these tasks and everything, make sure you're getting back to them in a timely manner. If you don't have the resolution, then tell them that and get back to them and tell them I'm working it. That's that's a huge thing of trust with leadership. Also, you know, with we can talk about DHA and the new transition to markets and everything. You know, there is no box anymore. So bring your proposals, bring your ideas and don't wait for somebody to ask about it. You've got great ideas and we need new thoughts because, you know, I'm the old person here, but you are new, innovative people that are going to make the solutions for tomorrow's, you know, military. And then your reputation, 
you have to preserve that. You have to make sure that you are staying true to yourself, but also keeping your reputation and, and being a good leader. Because once you ruin that in such a small career field as the MSCs, you're done. And it doesn't matter how good of an MSC you are. You could be the greatest RMO, flight commander, whatever. But if you have a reputation of not being able to get along with people or not being truthful, that will go around because we ask people, you know, you're going for SGA, you're going for leadership positions or key, you know, one deep positions. We talk to each other. We're small core. And if you've got a bad reputation, you won't get hired in a lot of these jobs. So those are the key four areas that you really need to preserve in your career and, and really stay focused because that's your trust, your reputation, and just staying true to yourself and what you believe in. Don't let somebody challenge that and make you change your views. It's not worth it. I hope our reputation is still good after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> our reputations were debatable before the podcast. So let's just, <laughs> let's just be clear. <laughs> As a prior commander, that's not true. I trust <laughs> all of you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, that. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, hey, Colonel Mackey, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us and just share some of those insights with our audience. It really means a lot to us that, uh, again, that you were willing to take the time and also great that, you know, you had that connection to the book that we were covering, you know, and has woven into our stories, our military stories as, as we are growing through the ranks. So thanks again for your time. And, you know, we wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. I appreciate being a, a part of this. Really honored. So thank you. So. We've got the first special guest in the can. So that was uh, in the can. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's showbiz lingo right there. We recorded it. It's in the can. In the can. I've never <laughs> heard of that. <laughs> have you not? No. <laughs> you don't. I mean, I believe you. Wow. So what an interview. That was great. I mean, I don't know how you got that. Our first guest, a full bird colonel, you know, on our podcast. That's pretty awesome. Well, it's interesting, you know, I don't know, I don't know how indicative this is of anything, right? But it's like, of the people I've talked to about the podcast, they're either CGOs or O6s. And there's like, no we, in between. The yeah. middle, the middle tier, you know, those, those FGOs just kind of like, hey, man, I'm a pro Joe for a lot of stuff. I got, I'm really busy. I got three young kids at home. I, I don't have time for a podcast. I don't know what it is, but it was exciting to to have a guest and to kind of weave that into into the show. It really kind of changed the dynamic of uh, of the episode, and I'm kind of excited to see how it all it's all going to turn out. Yeah, I thought we had a really good discussion. Honestly, it was really insightful from hearing someone who's been in the field for 28 years. You know, that's that's a lot of experiences that I have not seen yet not heard yet probably either so any of that will just help all of us in our careers going forward agree time for unpopular opinion all right so it's my turn for the unpopular opinion and here it is i think that demers eye time cards are are great and that everybody should no. use demers eye and i personally like it a lot you can't see the screen for me and Chris, but we just have our hands on our faces in disgust. I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. 
I mean, we've been friends for a long time. How has this never come up before? I, I, this is very surprising. Probably because I didn't work in Armo while we were working together. But uh, if you recall, let me take you back. You know, all those Friday morning standups, you know, who's the readiness guy telling people what Demers I code to put for their training day, for their exercise, all those things. This guy, this guy, the that's, signs were that's true. The signs were there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The signs were there. Yes, they were there. <laughs> all right. Let me state my case and then you guys can poke holes in it if you so choose. I'm going to mute because otherwise, if I don't mute my microphone, I am definitely going to interrupt you. One point of clarification is that I am not saying that Demerzai is perfect or that the way that it's been implemented and the way that we use Demerzai is ideal. But first thing is having spent some time in the medical data repository, MDR or in M2, the richness of the data as an analyst that you have using Demers Eye time card information across peer facilities, facilities that are larger than you, facilities in your market is a rich resource to really mine a lot of insight from what the commits are on people's time, uh, how much we really spend on one activity or another. And then also when it comes to matching up clinical hours with CPGs and with diagnosis codes, DRGs and CPGs, we can really get a lot of great data insights on the manpower cost of healthcare. Point two is having a time card system is an accountability tool that all levels of leadership can use if Holding people accountable for how they're spending their time is an important piece of what that leader or what that manager needs to do in order to get the mission done. So at least in those two ways, I feel that Demerzai is a very powerful tool. And I know this is the company line, but uh, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid long ago is if you are a user of Demerzai and you're putting in straight eights or you're distorting your time you're not doing yourself any favors. And if you report accurately, just like in readiness reporting or in other ways, just tell it like it is in the aggregate, the value out of a higher data reliability that we'll have for Demersai is going to pay significant dividends across the MHS. So to your last point, I agree with you 100% that good data in is going to produce good data out. But I'm skeptical that there's good data that gets put in there. I don't think people are really okay. reporting the way that they're that they should be. So what are you basing the idea that there's bad Demersai data? What are you basing that on? Is that personal observation? It's it, yeah, I mean, and and you're right. i I don't have any hard data to to say like, the time that people are putting in is, is in fact the time that they're spending doing those activities. And that sort of is the second point here, right? Because you said this is a good tool to hold people accountable, but how can we hold people accountable if we're not auditing those times, right? So in order to know, right, maybe somebody really did do eight hours in one specific section or task, whatever code, right? We will never know unless we're actually auditing that program. And 
who's going to do that auditing? Like that would be on supervisors at all levels to audit that. And I guess that's what the, what the approvers, right. Or the, for the, each section, that's in essence what they're supposed to do, but are they actually doing that? And, and are they held accountable to, to doing it? I, I don't, I just, I don't know. So, I mean, that audit forcing function exists with our civilian employees, right? Because their time card has to match their Demers eye. I forget the system. ATAPs, yeah. and that's only for when they're, it's leave, you know, their leave has to match in Dimmerzai and ATAPs. But the little nuances that the civilian might do, meeting here, actual patient care here, readiness training here, that's not scrutinized. Okay, fair enough. I think the total hours per day are, but which Dimmerzai code is made up of those hours is a question mark, right? Okay, I mean, that's fair. I, I think, but so there's a system that's in place. It's just only used for a certain population in a certain context. And what I would say is, again, going back to, you know, a data validity benchmark, right, is how many time cards do you need to audit in order to say that the system is reliable? It's something less than 100% and not 100% of time periods, right? I think where we really get ourselves into trouble or where we really start to talk about garbage data in there is when you're five time cards behind and your SEL is standing over your shoulder telling you, you need to submit all five time cards and you have 30 seconds to do it. And then it's just, well, how quickly can I get this test done? 888888888, submit. 888888888, submit. But if you actually, you know, make it part of your routine, say on a Friday to go in there and, you know, like, you know, you pull up your Outlook calendar you know, okay, how did I account for my time? I had two hours of meetings on this day, so on and so forth. It's something where, again, talking about that vision and that purpose is, you know, if we emphasize it as leaders and we show that we're watching by maybe, you know, asking someone to justify the hours that they put periodically and that word kind of gets out, it's like, oh, hey, you know, boss man's looking at the time cards, better make sure that that's at least reasonably accurate. Those are ways that we as leaders can then help to further that effort to have higher data reliability. So in all of the items that are currently tugging at my attention, why should this one be prioritized above all of those others? Because, and and we're not just talking about an MSC thing here, right? We're talking about down in our patient care areas, right? Where you know, they're seeing patients and they're telling us they're overwhelmed and undermanned. Why should they spend that extra, say, maybe 30 minutes or even an hour to do this verification when they're not going to see the, at least I don't think they would see the immediate reward of doing that. And I think it's not even an immediate reward. It's like, it's the opposite. You're going to see the immediate backfire of them not doing it. So unfortunately, not seeing that reward sooner, I think, deters people. And then, you know, and three quick points, you mentioned it, Chris, the accountability. I feel like there is very little, I won't say none, but very little accountability of people doing their demos correctly. Half the time, it's just, we need to meet the data quality metrics. Let's submit it on time and let them get approved on time. And look, we're in the green. But what was approved and what was submitted, nobody goes into the weeds with that. And I kind of have beef with that. I think it's starting to come up a little bit more as budgets are being affected in the same fiscal year, not even like the next fiscal year. And now leaders are like, oh man. And I know me, I'm reminding people to reside daily. 
And I even have all the codes pinned on my notebook. So if anyone has a question on what it is, oh, it's FCG4 or whatever, I can say it right then and there instead of I'll go back and look for it and I'll email you. And then that email gets lost. You hear the phrase garbage in, garbage out. Well, I said, if it's garbage in, garbage out, I mean, if it's trash can, then yeah, that makes sense. But when the small nuances of the Dimmerzai website drive people crazy, it just deters them more and more to not do it. Like, for example, if it gets rejected, but it was actually correct, I actually have to go in and change one of the numbers from zero to one to actually submit it. Like, why? Why can't I just submit the same thing that was actually correct, but I have to go in there and change something? Or if I submit something and I'll have to add a new line, it literally takes me like 10 minutes to add a new line because I have to let things, the project code populate, then I have to let the name populate, then I got to let the active duty name populate. Like why, it shouldn't take that long. I should just be able to say, I did this for this many hours. If it was that simple and very user-friendly, I think more people are going to do it. So Dimmer's Eye purpose, I 100% agree with it, especially since now I work in RMO. But the website itself is what drives me up the wall and so if you let it sit for a little bit too, you're trying to go calculate your hours. Now you're timed out. Your whole time card's gone and you have to start over. Like why? If they could just make it a little user-friendly, I would be, I think way more people would be on board with doing Dipper's Eye. And that's why I think there should be a different system. I don't know what it is. I really wish I had the answer for it. If it's badging into your office and you're doing office work, if you badge into a clinic room and you're doing clinic work and it's kept that way or some other system, but I think the website itself, garbage in, garbage out, it's, I think it's a trash can. Mm. That's a fair point. I would say that it, like many things in our DOD environment, right, that our systems actively work against the things that we supposedly are trying to do. One point I do want to get back to, and, and this will be my last point on it, is you know, Chris, you had talked about in the face of all of the priorities and all of the tasks that you have, why am I going to prioritize this high? I guess, so one question that I would have for you, right, is as a flight commander of, what did you say, like 50, 50 to 70 people somewhere in that neighborhood? Yeah, 43. 43. Okay, so, so four dozen-ish people that you supervise how long, so we do time cards every two weeks, you know, what kind of time commitment do you think, you know, you auditing one or two time cards each pay period, what's the time commitment you would say that there's with that? If your Demersai timekeeper for your duty section is kind of queuing up that information for you. Oh yeah. It's, it's small. I mean, I'll, I'll admit 30 minutes at most. Right. And most of that is spent talking to the people, which are the things that we say that we want to be out there doing anyway. Right. And yeah, so but I don't want to be talking to them about time cards. Well, I think that's just one or maybe a handful of questions that are asking not the entire conversation. It's like, where were you at on Monday, <laughs> Monday the, the 15th at 1 p.m.? Demers Eye says that you were here. All right. So. What I would say is this is like many small, important, but not urgent tasks in our Eisenhower quadrants, right? Is if you schedule it and you can maintain it consistently, maybe, I don't know, let's steal some atomic habits type stuff. You know, if you put it on your outlook calendar, you make it, you make it easy and you make it rewarding in some way, some sort of treat for yourself that by doing the audit, 
that you ask to do, then you know you can get that reward, whatever that may be, is you could make a habit out of it. You can make it stick. It's not a significant time commitment in the two weeks of we'll say nine to 10 hour days that we're probably doing. You know, a 30 minute commitment isn't significant. It's just a matter of deciding that, yay, this is something that's important that I want to do and then just sticking with it. I don't disagree with any of your points. I think Manoj hit on something that is super important that the system itself, I think, is flawed. I don't think that the what we're trying to use the data for is what's in question here. I think maybe just the way that we're approaching it. I would be much more in favor of rather than trying to sit down every two weeks and remember what I did over the previous two weeks, right? Because you can create templates and so you can kind of automate it to a certain degree. We're trying to manage like every day, like what I've done, just doing it daily. Like you do it at the end of the day, every day. And it's it doesn't necessarily have to be that system, but it can be some other system that's, you know, maybe a little more user-friendly that when we select our facility, right, all of those codes pop up or, you know, and it's delineated maybe even down to your work section. And so you don't have to really think about the previous two weeks. You just think, well, what did I do today? And I think one, you'd get at least in the long term, the hope would be you're building habits from everybody. So people would hopefully start to remember at the end of the day that they needed to do this. But then I think you would also get better quality of data because what you have to remember is much shorter. And then you just hit the submit button at the end of the day. And then maybe it goes to every two weeks, the RMO office is looking at that every two weeks. And then by exception, go to the people that hadn't done one or maybe missed a day. Here's the thought for you. So create a step in Outlook that is a one click, you know, make it an end of day type thing. One click, it pulls up a draft email with a template on it for the day and have that auto sent once you populate your numbers to your Demers Eye Monitor and just have that one person fill out everybody's time card every two weeks. And then cumulatively, that one person is spending significantly less time than the 43 individuals alone, each spending X amount of minutes, X amount of hours, every pay period or every time card period. To be fair, for complete transparency, I have less than 10 people that need to do time cards. Okay. So then your Devers Eye time card monitor can probably get away with that pretty easily. <laughs> I just say, like, I, I think it's, I said the last point was my last point, but this one really is my last point that it's a bit of a cop-out to say, well, the system sucks. So that's why I'm not going to do it. Right. Is that, okay, well, like, what are we doing? What, what incremental steps? That's not within my control, right? I can't implement a local version of Demersi. So what is within my control that I could potentially do? And when we talk about like spark tank ideas or things like that is if we can innovate our way around some of those system limitations or consolidate the workload, right? You know, batching workload is one of those Six Sigma tools, right? To reduce waste and reduce the time it takes to do a task. It's at least a thought on somewhere we can go. I mean, I haven't done that. That's just kind of just an idea, but I am a big fan of using uh, steps in Outlook to automate recurring tasks. And so it's just something worth looking into. All right. So in closing, The next book for our book club, the next episode is going to be All In by Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton. That's from the Core Chiefs reading list. 
So tune in next episode for that. Special thanks again to Colonel Mackey for coming on to this episode to spend a little bit of time with us. And from all of us here to all of you out there, have a good one. C41A is an independent company and produced by C41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima. Marketing and IT, Christopher Foote. And director and outreach, Greg Taylor.